0: Austin University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Welcome to BU Law with host David Yags.
1: Well, hello, everyone, and once again, welcome to the Boston University School of Law Podcast. I'm your host, David Yaz. I used to be the publisher over at Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. Currently, my day job is a VP at Bernstein Global Wealth Management here in Boston. But most importantly, I am a proud alum of the law school. And I I say that with the utmost of conviction. When somebody says they're an alum, they always say they're proud. But I really am. I am genuinely a proud alum of the law school. So today we have a moment, and this is just a, a great podcast moment here, because we're going to chat with Bob Burdick of the law school. And Bob heads up the School of Law's Housing, Employment, Family, and Disability Clinic, and the reason why it's near and dear to my heart is I am an alum of the clinic itself, having actually tried a case as a student attorney and handling a couple of clients in the clinical program. And it was just a wonderful experience. And so we're going to get into a lot of the stories about the clinic and things that have emerged and things that students have learned and, and all that great stuff. So so the, the students who participate in the civil litigation programs clinic work for credit under the supervision of four full-time BU Clinical Faculty and it's done with a partnership of Greater Boston Legal Services in downtown Boston which if you know GBLS they do such a wonderful job on on such a, a shoestring budget now more than ever I might add and we're going to talk again with Bob Burke. The great Bob Burke is here with me in studio. He runs the and I'm going to say this again Bob we need to snap of your name but it is the Housing Employment Family and Disability Clinic part of the school's clinical program he directs it Bob has led significant litigation in a number of civil law areas including anti-discrimination lawsuits tenants rights cases insurance company claim settlement practices also Bob has become nationally recognized in the area of negotiation leading training programs for the Washington State legislature Connecticut legal services and the Alaska Attorney General's office there's more to your bio Bob but time does not permit us to hit all the highlights but Welcome to the program. How are you this morning? Uh, I'm fine, David.
2: Thank you for having
1: me. Well, well, very good. It's 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 my pleasure. And I've I've known Bob since since I was a student. But he started way before that. Back in the clinic start actually started in 1969. Is that right? That's correct. Back in the in the in the 60s when everyone was fighting the power. And you joined in 1975. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Well, you don't look a day older than when I used to work with you. So that's I wish good that news. were true. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more gray. We both have a little bit more gray in the hair, but that's okay. That's what uh, having a law degree will do for you over the years. So tell us tell us how the clinic started and tell us about those early days. Uh,
2: the late 60s uh, were a, a time uh, in which students were eager to uh, make contributions of service to the community in addition to just going to law school. Uh, so there was student pressure. Uh, the law school already had a defender, criminal defender and prosecutor program, but there was student pressure to expand it to legal services.
1: Is that still done in connection with the uh, Quincy uh, District Court or the, the Norfolk County Day's office? Uh, no, yes, Mr. there's sure. a
2: prosecutor program th- with David Breen in Quincy District Court, mm-hmm. and there are uh, several teachers that uh, – uh, provide criminal defense representation in the Mm. BMC and uh, juvenile courts.
1: Right. Also a wonderful program.
2: But now we're talking about this morning. So please continue. Um, The, uh, what was then the Office of Economic Opportunity, OEO, part of the, Johnson War on Poverty, uh, was funding legal services organizations throughout the country, including uh, the Boston Legal Assistance Project, later to become Greater Boston Legal Services. It was even then one of the premier legal services organizations in the country, and uh, its executive director, Bob Spangenberg, had been part of the administration of BU Law School. So that facilitated a, a, a partnership that, is atla- that essentially has lasted 43 years, where uh, BU would provide one full-time clinical teacher who would function as a staff attorney with his or her students
1: uh, to represent legal services clients. Mm-hmm. So for you know, for those that don't know, th- this is a system where the, the students actually do try the cases. Now, they do it with a supervising attorney with them, as you say, one of the full-time clinical lawyers, their lawyers or Correct. professors as well. And so and that's allowable but there's a rule. I forget it's a, a student state practice rule.
2: rule right. Most states have it that right. allows students in this kind of program to uh, represent clients. As long as the clients can't afford private lawyers. We're not competing with the private bar for representation. We're representing people who would not otherwise have lawyers represent them.
1: So what if you have you have a law student who is still kind of learning the ropes and yet they're they're up there in court, you know, uh, arguing on behalf of someone who was something very important on the line? But what if they screw up? Uh, well,
2: it's our job to prevent them from screwing up mm-hmm. ahead of time by thoroughly preparing them and to be there to catch them in the event that they do screw up. So students are virtually never at hearings without one of their clinical professors next to them. But the key here is preparation, thorough preparation, so that those kinds of events don't occur.
1: And I can tell you that the preparation level and the the meticulous nature of the training in the clinical program is just superior. Uh, I remember learning – everything is by the book. Everything is by the book. And and you, know, you, you teach – so you teach the students how to write this type of letter to an attorney and file this kind of pleading and complaint and discovery and, and all the way through. And I remember opposing counsel in our case being bewildered at how much he had to deal with. And the only reason why is because we were doing everything – correctly, you know, I think. Is, is, is that, have I correctly captured the spirit? Or tell Yes. Me? I
2: mean, our students have a very small caseload. They're only assigned as many cases as they can competently handle, according to their clinical professor. So we're often far better prepared than our opponents, uh, simply because the student has the time to be able to prepare.
1: And tell us the way in which this trains students for future practice of law.
2: Well, uh, essentially what we're trying to do is put our students in position to be the primary case handlers, uh, where they can responsibly take on uh, the responsibility of being a lawyer uh, without taking on more responsibility than their inexperience can handle. So it's essentially a tutorial where the clinical professor has no more than eight students during the course of the, the year uh, and thoroughly prepares each student for as much as you can reasonably do uh, for each test, particularly hearings. We're going to role play hearings ahead of time uh, so that the teacher is in a position to know uh, what he or she has to know in order to make sure the client is prepared and that the and safe uh, from the, and that the student is prepared to do what uh, is likely to happen in court.
1: So is this required by the law school? Do you need do you need to do this program? To, it's not. It's not. What? Why not? Shouldn't it be?
2: Um, it's expensive. Some states, Maryland, for instance,
1: requires it.
2: Uh, there are other states that hmm. do. Um, Massachusetts makes Massachusetts a number of law schools all of which have clinical programs of one sort or another, uh, but they're not required. It's perhaps just deference
1: to the law schools to decide how best to manage their uh, curriculum. Mm-hmm. It's it's a philosophical debate that we probably don't have time to completely get into. But uh, for my money, if it were if it were feasible, it, it should be required because you look at you compare us to the medical profession and. You know, I'm obviously not a doctor, and I haven't been through med school, but I know that it's long, and I know that it is extremely clinical and practical in nature. And, uh, you know, to get a law degree, you can get a law degree without leaving the classroom and go out and practice law and have somebody's life in your hands, and, and that that's a, a scary thing. And, and your students, um, they know what to do when they get out. Well, they right? certainly
2: have an introduction. Obviously, mm-hmm.
1: it takes a while to learn— what a
2: lawyer needs to know to competently practice law. But we're trying to impart sort of fundamental practices and, and concepts and values that our students can use in a variety of different situations. But you're right, it's a very complicated thing. Uh, law school tends to teach uh, legal doctrine, uh, not skills. And to be able to use skills uh, with judgment uh, requires, we believe, uh, skilled, uh, supervision.
1: Right. Tell us about your particular teaching method that you've developed over the years.
2: Um, well, mine isn't necessarily different from other people that do what I do. Essentially what we're trying, I, I think of my job as the intellectual practice of law. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're trying to teach theories of competent legal practice, theories of interviewing, counseling, negotiating, trial practice, uh, ethical theories as well as to how to manage certain kinds of traditional professional conflicts. Uh, so we, we teach these theories in, in written assignments in class, but we're also constantly asking the students to test with us uh, the applicability of these theories in practice in the real cases that they're handling on mm-hmm. behalf
1: of their clients. Mm-hmm. So let, let's talk about some of the particulars. Let's talk about some of the, the triumphs that you've seen by student attorneys in your program. And then I'm going to tell you my triumph, which isn't really a triumph so much as a survival. But give us give us a story. All right. Uh, I'd like to share with you two stories.
2: Okay. Um, uh, over the 43-year the history of the clinic, we've had a number of sort of landmark decisions uh, about Five years ago, I had a student, I had a case uh, that was uh, a case of first impression. The the legislature had passed a law which protected uh, people who were the recipients of rental subsidies, Section 8 programs like that, uh, from discrimination. Uh, so that landlords couldn't refuse to uh, rent to them just because they had these subsidies. But the law was not very well developed. Um, We got one of these cases. Klein had been denied a rental subsidy. Um, We took it to Superior Court. Uh, went through several students, because a case like this takes a while. Uh, eventually, uh, I had a third-year student who got the case, probably the third student into the case, and the other side had filed a motion for summary judgment in Superior Court. So he had to brief the, the motion. He had to argue it. And we lost. The judge applied a very traditional Title VII under the Civil Rights Act framework uh, that we thought was legally incorrect. And so Mm -hmm. we appealed it to the Appeals Council. The SJC took it. By this time, the student has now graduated from BU Law School, but was still in Boston and agreed to to continue to work on the case for free uh, with me. Uh, He would eventually uh, brief and argue the case before the full bench of the Supreme Judicial Court, Mm -hmm. and we would win a unanimous landmark decision that Judge... Where Judge Marshall, who wrote the the decision, adopted virtually our entire framework for analyzing this particular statute. It's wow. now become a very important uh, case in this area.
1: What's the name of the case?
2: Uh, Delito versus Indec. Okay. Uh, second story I'd like to tell you. Uh, just took place in in May uh, at a student who handled a legal malpractice case uh, where she tried the entire trial. We represented a Vietnamese couple who spoke almost no English, Mm. but they had put their family's life savings on the line in a $13,000 deposit to buy a house in the greater Boston area. Uh, And then the deal had fallen through and they lost their deposit. And we contended that their lawyer uh, had committed legal malpractice, one of the few legal malpractice cases I had ever handled. Our, our theory was essentially the lawyer was admitted to representing both the mortgage bank and our clients, the prospective buyers. Mm. And we we alleged that he had kind of gotten confused about who his client was and neglected ours and had failed to warn them adequately and advise them of what their rights are and as a result had lost their deposit for sure. them. We. We tried the case, student tried the entire case in the Quincy District Court, uh, which included doing a direct examination of one of our clients with a Vietnamese interpreter and the cross examination of the lawyer defendant. And while in my legal experience, we seldom actually win a case as a result of cross examination, this student won this case, in my opinion, through the cross examination. It was masterful.
1: Uh, and Did the, the ju- student get, essentially get the attorney to admit that there was an yeah, inherent it, conflict of interest? Or- uh, it,
2: he didn't share her legal assessment of what was wrong with what he did. Right. He he openly admitted what he had done, uh, he sh- he didn't share our legal assessment of what of what he had done wrong, but the judge did. The judge bought it, uh, and ruled in our favor. And we're now in the process of trying to figure out how to collect uh, this judgment. But that this was a case where the student did the entire trial, uh, and I, I, honestly, I didn't feel I could have done a better job than she did. It was a, it was a masterful performance, and it was one of those things that has sort of. It has justified my staying in this job as long as I have.
1: That it was the, just a great moment. The attorney in question was not, obviously, a legal services. He was a private no, lawyer. No, he was a private right? lawyer taking so, on the case. Yep. was
2: planning to get paid by the bank if yep. the case had closed. Uh, once the case fell through, he didn't get paid by anybody, but our client lost their $13,000 deposit.
1: But that is there's a little bit of irony to the story that the the lawyer who was paid for what he did, unfortunately, dropped the ball and incomes— Legal services and does their typical, typically, typically um, you know top-notch job and um, and gets that uh, result reversed. So that's that's a great one. So uh, I'm going to keep our listeners on the edge of our seat and reveal my triumph triumphant story from my days in the clinical program. After we take a break here, we are we're talking here today with Professor Bob Burdick from the law school about the clinical program and some great stuff to follow on the other side, so please stay with us.
0: Located in Boston and steeped in 139 years of a rich tradition, BU Law is ranked number one in the nation for best professors and number eight for best classroom experience, according to the Princeton Review. BU Law. Admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872 and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law.
1: Well, welcome back to the BU School of Law podcast. I'm David Yaz, your host, and my guest today is my good friend, Professor Bob Burdick, one of the four supervisors who run BU School of Law's Housing, Employment, Family, and Disability Clinic. And as I mentioned earlier, I am an alum of this, of the clinical program. My supervising attorney was Connie Brown who I'm delighted to, to learn this morning from Bob as we were speaking before the podcast that she's still involved in the in the program and correct. still molding young legal minds. And uh, Connie just has a wonderful way of, of keeping things. Uh, she had one way of keeping me engaged and yet uh, calm, which is that when you were a student attorney, the idea of actually trying a case in court is needless to say, harrowing. And Connie has a wonderful sense of humor, a wonderful sense of uh, humanity, I think, in what, in what she does. And so I, I learned a lot from Connie. So that's my big shout out to you, Connie. Um, so we were talking about, you know, success stories. And the first case you mentioned, Bob, was the DeLeo case, which went all the way up to the SJC and was successfully tried by a student attorney. And I was wondering if you mentioned who, who that attorney was. His name is
2: Sahir Sami at the time that he... So he took the case, starting as a third-year student, and then he would eventually graduate, be admitted to the bar. By the time he got to the SJC, he was a full member of the Massachusetts bar. He continued was, okay. to work uh, on the case as part of the program with me.
1: I see. Well, that's wonderful that he the opportunity to do that. Does he practice law now in Boston? He does. Boston, he's a uh, he? Boston lawyer. Terrific, terrific. And. The second case you mentioned, which was the legal malpractice case, who was the student attorney? Uh, it was
2: Marjan Bachelor, a okay. second year student. So she still has another year of law school ahead of her.
1: All right, and a bright future ahead of her, from what I gather. And uh, uh, <laughs> I, I don't ever want to be on the witness stand when she is cross examining someone <laughs> because she sounds very tough. Uh, fantastic. Well, I was I was sort of half serious when I said I had a great story of triumph, but I did I did win the one case that I tried. Um, uh, technically, I guess I, I I won both cases. I I won a disability case just on the pleadings, but I did go to court with um, with Connie Brown, and we tried a case defending a woman who was being evicted from her apartment in East Boston. And the place where she lived was just really decrepit, and the, there were ceiling tiles falling off, and it was it was just kind of unsettling. And she had a it was just her, she and her young daughter who was this adorable, you know, four-year-old, you know, prancing about. And, um, you know, she didn't have much money to pay the rent, but um, really under the law, she was entitled to withhold the rent because of the conditions of the apartment. And the the landlord was um, just not, um, uh, not a very stand-up guy, let's just say. And so, uh, but what happened was um, in gathering um, some information that my client's uh, apartment, Connie and I went and interviewed her, and she was telling us about these terrible things. the The ceiling tiles and the, the heat wasn't working. and there were there was a problem with the stove. and what happened was something had happened with the stove that was, I, I guess fair to say unsanitary. And there's no easy way to put this, but there were maggots. there were maggots in the stove, which is which is just a terrible image. And my client, uh, the you know being a a good client, had actually saved physically <laughs> saved these bugs in a Ziploc bag. And during the middle of the, our initial interview, she was handing me this bag with bugs in it. And and I looked to Connie as if to say, I, is this part of my job? To and Connie sort of said, well, yeah, you know, that's evidence. so I ended up driving – that those the bag of bugs was in my car, like I was <laughs> driving around with them that entire semester. And um, I, I failed to enter it in evidence. The judge said that um,
2: – Wasn't necessary. No,
1: right. And he didn't, he didn't want to get into any sort of organic material. Um, material and but I think he got the point so and um, my client my client won the case so that's that's the story of the bugs which uh, which I think Connie will remember so t- tell us um just tell us uh, briefly Bob about the the types the types of cases that we've mentioned housing cases you mentioned a rare malpractice case what other kinds of cases do the students work on
2: as I said we're, we're trying to find cases that involve hearings and that allows students to be the primary case handlers. So there are sort of four areas that we tend to focus on. We do divorces. Uh, and uh, we're looking for divorces that have usually somebody who can pay child support. So there's usually children involved uh, property uh, during the heyday of uh Personal property or uh, real property in Massachusetts, so you would have substantial equity that had to be divided. Sometimes uh, there are pensions involved as well, so there are opportunities for both counseling and negotiating. Uh, most of the cases settle. Uh, a lot of motion practice in those cases, but every once in a while, like three years ago, I had a student who did a full day uh, divorce trial, which is actually fairly rare in my own divorce experience. Uh, we do. Uh, what was the result of that? Uh, well, it's obviously, there are a number of issues, but uh, we felt that it was a, a victory for us, uh, issues that we had not been able to settle. The judges essentially chose uh, in, in our favor over the other side, uh, but it's always a mixed bag. You know, you, you, you're better off settling a divorce than, than taking it to trial. But uh, student uh, at the, the end of the trial, the judge said, well, wait a minute, you're a student, <laughs> and the judge has forgotten that, that the student who'd handled it, and had done a, a, a wonderful job, uh, had was a, was a third-year law student at the time. We do eviction defenses, uh, often in the housing court, which is a very uh, good court for us. One of the uh, the chief judge there, uh, Jeff Winnick, was one of our clinical professors for a number of years. Uh, he's used to working with students.
1: I would mention that the judge who I was in front of in, in my trial was Judge Herman Smith, right. who was a former supervisor in the program a, right? as well. And I figured that was good news for me, and he would understand my my plight and my challenges, and uh, it was the reverse. He was as tough as I could possibly imagine. Oh, sure, imagine. <laughs> sure.
2: I, you know, I, mean, I just think that the housing court is a comfortable place for students to try a case. Sometimes we'll encounter courts that have never worked with students before and are somewhat put off by that. So we're looking for judges who Understand that students can do a a good job of representing clients, and most of the courts that we practice and
1: do that. How so, about uh, sorry to interrupt you, Bob, but uh, arbitrations and mediations are your students at the table. Uh, we those we do
2: mediations all? and divorces. They okay. have the, the probate courts have mediators.
1: We do mediations
2: in housing cases. Uh, Quincy District Court employs mediators to come in and uh, to mediate cases. Uh, we do social security disability hearings, which virtually almost always go to hearings. They don't have a mediation or arbitration component. And we we now have an employment rights clinic sort of as part of our overall framework uh, where we we do unemployment compensation cases. We do uh, some employment discrimination cases before Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination. Hmm. We do some uh, uh, family medical leave cases and some wage and hours cases that's gotten us into federal court. So those are the four main categories Every once in a while, we'll have something that's a little different, such as the legal malpractice case that I described to you before.
1: And in many ways, you are a law firm, right? So, I mean, if you win, tell me what happens. Let's say you win a discrimination case and there's a, a money verdict. What happens to that? Well, the,
2: the, the, the damages are going to go to the client right? Uh, because our services are provided for free. But a number of the cases that we pursue involve reasonable attorney's fees, provisions, and uh, so uh, one case I was involved in, we got more than a quarter of a million dollars in attorney's fees. Mm-hmm. And that goes to Greater Boston Legal Services, which provides our overhead. Uh, BU pays uh, GBLS a certain amount of money, to, uh, but but not 100% on the dollar of what it costs. So any reasonable attorney's fees we recover go to them.
1: Is there any way that that system could be changed? GBLS, like all legal services organizations these days, I take it is strapped for cash, Absolutely. fair to say. Sure. So is is there any play there? And I wonder, um, I'm just thinking out loud, um, you don't seem to take um, play it, tort cases, too many tort cases. Well, we cases. do. Sometimes okay. we'll
2: take, I have a, I have a, a personal injury case uh, that okay. evolved out of uh, an eviction case. A okay. client had an asthma attack during the renovations of conditions that we were complaining about. And so we've taken that case on. That's a fairly unusual thing. We do not take con- uh, contingencies. Uh, those would be something that a private lawyer would take, and we typically wouldn't take a case that a private lawyer would take. And if it, if it came out of our other work, though, f- there are reasons why we might do that.
1: So in that particular personal injury case that you mentioned, the, the client would get the entire size of the, of the verdict? That's or? correct.
2: It will not be reduced. And their a- attorney's fees provisions for some of the legal theories that we're pursuing, in mm-hmm. that case, under the Consumer Protection Statute, for instance,
1: yeah, but why not have a system where you get a third, like, uh, you know, the, the well, legal service, the GBLS could use it, right?
2: Student practice rule prevents it. Mm. Uh, there are a variety of rules that could potentially prevent it. Uh, GBLS has looked at the possibility of sliding scales, and mm-hmm. there are a variety of reasons why those ideas have been rejected. But in terms of a student practice, uh, we cannot charge for our services directly. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and that's simply a, a policy decision that was made a long time ago. It's occasionally revisited. But uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't give the money, in my opinion, to Greater Boston Legal Services. That pays for our overhead as it is.
1: Right. Well, I'm just I'm just brainstorming here, Bob, They're trying to be part of the oh, greater sure. good. Because, listen, the, these are people who are uh, at crossroads in their lives. These are people at critical moments. Um, these are people being evicted from their apartment, these are people who are getting divorced, and there are moments that are going to change their lives, and and your students are so well-trained and do such a nice job there, and it is a shame that uh, you can't do more. It it is. Uh, So, tell us, um, you know, we've talked about what your students learn. What have you learned over the years? Well, I I think I've learned that uh, the teacher always
2: learns more than the student. Um, One of my sort of maxims is the The worse it gets, the better it gets. Because no matter how bad the situation, there's always something to be learned, both ethically as well as strategically, about what it means to be a good lawyer. So, you know, I am constantly talking about the practice of law with my students, grounded in real cases. So, you know, if you're paying attention at all, you're constantly evolving your own theories about what it means to be a good lawyer. So I I would say uh, I've learned probably far more than my students have
1: well, over the years. And it, it you have those moments, right? And the, the students have the moments where it hits them, this is really what it means to be a lawyer, and this is something you don't learn in first-year contracts or civil procedure. I, I mentioned one of the cases I worked on. The, the other one I worked on was a disability case where my client was uh, emotionally troubled, let's just say, and she had um, uh, some kind of emotional disorder that resulted in depression and and uh, moments of intense anxiety and things like that. And so in talking and getting to know her story, she at one point sort of couldn't continue talking to me and, and ended up sort of outside the office um, kind of shaking and crying and being consoled by her boyfriend. And it then hit me at that moment, you know, I better be really sensitive and really listen to this woman <laughs> and, and and because now I'm a, a counselor in the true sense of the word. Right. And I'm not just and, you know, these are these are people who's who, you know, need need your help in in, in many different ways.
2: And so much that's a more important part of being a lawyer than the legal theories that we use on behalf of our clients. Right. If we can't work with our clients, disabled clients, a large portion of our clients are disabled physically or or mentally. Uh, So a major part of what we're teaching is how to work with impaired clients. Clients that don't make appointments, clients that don't cooperate with the preparation of their cases—you uh, don't get that in any other part of the curriculum in law school. But uh, if you couldn't do that, you're essentially not going to be effective as an attorney.
1: And the ethical issues that you mentioned pop up all the time. It, it happened for me and this client I'm mentioning with the emotional troubles she had. A, a child who was with her the, with the child's father down in Florida, and in a bad situation. And suffice it to say, the my client, the mom, wanted to get the kid back, but the but the the boyfriend or whoever he was, the dad, was not receptive to this. And so it became a question of would it be legal for her to go down there and somehow find a point to meet her child and simply take the child away? Was that kidnapping? There was no custody order. So um, we did some legal research and, and I sort of decided it wasn't Kidnapping per se, um, but there was an ethical issue as to whether we should really be involved. as officer of the court was with, with a, a, you know, this plan to sort of, you know, heist this kid from yeah. and right. and it be, and we talked and talked and it was it, there was one light moment where the my client's mother was involved in the talk. She was sitting around the table and we were talking about the plan, the plan to go get this child. At one point, the mom the mom says, "You know what, uh, sweetheart." I love you, but the plan sucks <laughs> she, because, because it, was, it was fraught with, um, you know, uh, a lot of things could have gone wrong and they got down there and in fact, the plan didn't work and she ended up talking to the dad and eventually, I, I believe they worked something out, but, but that ethical issue and I remember being on the phone with lawyers down in Florida and asking about the ethical rules down there. So, the, the, the amount you learn and the things you experience are just, are just unlimited. So, uh, tell us how students get involved. It's
2: um, It's by lottery. Um, students in the spring apply for uh, one of a number of different clinics. I think uh, last year I counted them up. BU had uh, 15 different clinics that students could get involved in. Mine was just one of them. Um, And uh, so you apply, you you express your preference. Uh, Third year students who have not been in clinics get a first choice. Uh, Second years can get five be put on waiting list, but mm-hmm. uh, pretty much guaranteed. Anybody who wants to take our clinic uh, can take it uh, before they graduate. We can't necessarily guarantee that everybody gets in on their first time around in their second year. But Most people that
1: want to get, few people get shut out altogether. Nobody, gets shut out. Out. Nobody, gets, Nobody shut out gets shut out. Nobody gets shut
2: out, out okay, altogether. Good. You yep. want to take a clinic at BU Law School? You can take a clinic. Terrific. At
1: BU law Terrific. Well, I want to thank Bob Burdick, Professor Bob Burdick, for joining us today and talking about the law school's clinical program. Some wonderful stories and my uh, and, and needless to say it was great to to bring back some uh, some memories of the clinic and it's it helped make me a, b- a better lawyer and um how can people get in touch with you bob if they want to learn more about today's topic
2: um you can call the law school mm-hmm. uh, 617-353-3148 that's my number there
1: very good okay email do you want to provide your email or no get
2: um Burdick, sure Burdick at bu.edu.
1: Very good. Okay, well, I encourage you to follow up about, ask more about the clinic. This has been such a nice experience talking about the clinic, and I will remind folks that you can find all the editions of the BU Law podcast on the Legal Talk Network, the BU Law website, as well as in iTunes. Thanks so much, Bob. Hope Thank you, you enjoyed David. it. It's my pleasure. All
0: righty. I'm David Yaz. Thanks for listening, and have a great day, everyone. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.